right, Frank, we got some listener feedback questions today that are going to drive the entire topic. Can you believe it? Oh, I actually really love these. We're, we're, we're always kind of begging at the end for a few topic ideas. So it's always good when something interesting comes in and we want to talk about. It. So I'm all about it, man. Let's do this. Let's t- do some listener questions. Yes, that's, of course, mergeconflict.fm. There is a contact button. You can email us like Gary did. And we appreciate it, Gary. Gary Myers, he wrote in and said, two, it was really two questions. So we're going to break it down. And the second one is pretty short, I believe, that we can kind of summarize that do want to answer. I don't want to wait. I don't want to have Gary wait 10 more episodes for Lightning Talks. I want to <laughs> get to Gary's question. But the first one is very fascinating. It reminds me of the very first time I wrote an iOS or Android application coming from Windows. Um, I had uh, I worked with a team, my friend Jesse, that works at Twitch now. I talk about him all the time on the podcast. He literally worked in Canon, and he was our installer developer like all he did was installer stuff like everything you know what i mean yeah yeah i totally know what you mean because i wish i had someone working for me that did that i have one app that i have to maintain an installer with and it's too much because you think like oh an installer that's such an easy little app to write but no it takes a lot of engineering effort it turns out so that's pretty cool that it, it was canon then they actually had a proper uh uh installer engineer yeah, proper installer engineer. So he did the entire sort of, you know, it was MSI or, or Wix or whatever the different, they changed <laughs> a bunch. But, you know, when you were installing this huge application, it was laying down, you know, .NET framework versions. It was installing database yeah. scripts. It was running upgrade scripts. It was doing all sorts of crazy things. And I remember the first time I wrote a mobile application, I was like, I just, I just, put this file over here and I upload that and I'm done. And and sure enough, I was. And that's really what Gary's question comes down to. He says, and I read, I haven't yet seen any documentation about what is involved and permitted, I should say, when updating an iOS app from one version to another. For example, um, we're still not sure what this means, but we're going to try to break it down. He says, in what language are schema changes um, written and executed? Is file and directory copying and creation possible? Can we inquire about the user's device and branch the update code based on their hardware and iOS version, et cetera? He said, it would be great if you can make an episode or just give me the documentation. No, we <laughs> refuse, Gary, to give you documentation and we are going to make it all up um, off the top of no. our heads because we've been doing it for 10 years. So hopefully, Frank, we know how apps update. I, mean, I'm, 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 I imagine, you know, I click a button on my iPhone and I see the little bar, bop, 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 and it's updated. I imagine in that time that what has happened from knowing how I package up an iOS application works is that it does it did one of two things. I'm actually not sure what it does. <laughs> so one of two things could have happened. I think that when I up when my app updates from the app store, it either uninstalls and then reinstalls, or it basically X copies and, and overrides and just like plops it down. Just like, here's a big, <laughs> here's a bunch of globally goo of stuff. And it's like, here it is. Um, and that's it. That's what I imagine it is. Yeah. That's, that's, as far as I know, that's all it is too. <laughs> I actually really love this question because it it is one of those things that doesn't really make it into documentation for some reason. It's like, well, what does happen when I update my app? So, you know, you write an app and you're storing user data and 
if you're like me, you're storing data kind of everywhere, a little bit in the cloud, a little bit in the user preferences, and a little bit in the file system. And in the file system for different reasons. Some of it could be persistent user data that's actually really important. Other bits can just be cache stuff that, you know, you're just keeping around because you don't want to re-download it again. And as far as I know, just like what you said, if you have an established app, uh, these are, I almost call them Mac apps, but they're not Mac apps, <laughs> but they're dot apps. You know, they're the little directory called a dot app. And as far as I know, it's just a little file system magic where it's not actually X copying over the old app, but it's more like two pointers swapping. Mm. So it just kind of like magically flips <laughs> your uh, new code into place. Now, the big difference is, so your, your, app itself you can think of that as a hundred percent replacement from the old one the old one doesn't exist anymore however on ios some things do persist Mm -hmm. and those are your ns user defaults or at least the standard ones and those are your documents directory and that's about it your keychain also Yeah. yeah okay what am i forgetting is there more um, so, so in your, let's, let's make it very clear. So NS user defaults, these are your preferences. Um, if you're using Xamarin and essentials or, you know, in Android, these are called preferences as well. And these are Booleans, strings, integers. These are your settings of your application, um, that are there. And then those are, those are stored in a, in a magic area that, uh, is persisted and often sometimes backed up by the iOS system itself. And then the files... Oh. Right. I, no? I'm sorry, I just want to interrupt you because they're guaranteed to be backed up. It's actually really important because you kind of rely on that. At least I rely on that in my apps where I don't have cloud backups for everyone's data. So I'm like, don't install, don't uninstall the app because if you uninstall the app, that will actually delete all that data. Correct. Correct. Yeah. Now, the other part, though, is the file system. In this file system, there's a bunch of different directories. And this this should be... Uh, this is also very fascinating because there's a cache directory, there's your library, your your document directory, and each of those are persisted a little bit different from my understanding. You really don't need to worry about anything unless you're putting it in the temp or cache directory because by nature of a cache or temp directory, it is a directory that is temporary and should not be <laughs> should not be perceived yeah. <laughs> as important to be there at all times. So it is possible that a temporary or cache directory is removed if the the user has low memory, they're updating an operating system, or even updating your application. It it can be purged, if you will. But you're going to store not only files there, but you might be have um, might be saving your database um, directories, yeah. right? And I guess also if you used what is the built-in iOS um, database system? Uh, Core Data. I think you're thinking of. Is that a file? Is that stored somewhere different? I've never used it. I don't know if anyone should. Uh, as far as I know, um, cloud data, or sorry, cloud core data has a few modes. One is the cloud. So there's an iCloud version of core data, but another version of it is like a SQLite database. So that would be a file just sitting on your file system. And I just said the pink elephant in the room SQLite. <laughs> it's a great place to put all your data uh, monkey cache uses it and that goes on the file system the cool thing about that is when you update your app your database will still be sitting there waiting for you yes 
That's correct. Yeah, that's that's yeah. my understanding of it in general. And so if you're like, oh, I'm updating and I and I I expect this file to be there when I update, it, it will be there. But of course, if it's a fresh install, it wouldn't be there. So you know, your logic is going to be there. Like, did this file exist? Did it not exist? Did this setting exist? Did it not exist? Like, you know, did my user register uh, or not for my application? Um, it's seamless uh, in that experience. Right. And for all of my apps, just as a kind of design purpose, I've always tried to manufacture ways for people to get the data out of the app kind of easily. Because even though we as app developers have access to that documents directory, it's not always easily accessed from the by the user. So you have in your info P list, you can say that people can access their documents directory via iTunes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Have you ever used that file interface, the iTunes file interface? I've used the new files picker. Not not that, okay. not that. No, then I have not. No, then I have not. <laughs> this is like you go, you go into iTunes, you plug your phone in with a USB cable like it's 1990, and then oh. there's a tiny little window that acts like a finder, but it's really broken. <laughs> and it's really bad. So that was the state of the art for many years. Now there's finally a flag uh, where you can say, expose your app's files to the files app. Uh, the one running on iOS. And I, I like that a lot because it gives really easy access to your data. If you're putting a lot of data onto the documents directory and it's useful data to the user data they might want to move around, you should really consider enabling that files app flag. I forget what the, there's there's like a couple info P list ones. One of them something along the lines of share documents with files app. <laughs> Hmm, that makes sense. That makes sense. And so when we think about the database, though, I want to make sure that people are aware that, you know, in in most instances, there's usually not a lot of things that you need to worry about there. But if you do have a database based on whatever database you're using, there could be instances in which you change the schema of your database, if mm-hmm. you will. So I recommend Good never changing. Cha- I, <laughs> I recommend never changing or ever, right? And there's there's not like migrations. Yeah. I, like I don't really know of something that uses migrations for mobile applications similar to Entity Framework. Like that's not really a that's not really a concept. Hey. What? Right? Am I wrong? No. On mobile? You're completely wrong. Yeah. SQLite-net, man. Automatic migrations. Oh, yeah. I mean, sure. But I mean, as far <laughs> sure. as like having to generate a migration file, you know what I mean? That's what I'm thinking of. Yeah. Is- I don't know anyone who does that. Of course, you can do it yourself because that that is kind of just good practice in the database world to be able to go up and down in your database schema version. Mm-hmm. So if you're coming from the web or server world and that's what you're used to, go for it. You know, there's, there's no reason to be a bad programmer on mobile. It's not like a performance issue or anything there. But I, I'm too lazy to write those up and down scripts. So I just wrote a library that does it automatically. Yeah. So SQL, SQLite dash net, you know, if I add things, if I remove things, does that work too? As I, I'm no. assuming I can't change data types. That would be no. bad. Well, you know, there's some principles with databases. You know, it's a relational database. So if you want to add data, you should probably be adding tables. Don't really be adding columns to tables and just relate it back to the other tables. So in some ways, if you're following first normal form, databases expand forever without you having to modify the old tables. You just ignore the old table. <laughs> you know, it's, it's not a big deal. Uh, so no, I don't, I just chose the policy of not deleting 
columns because that just seemed a little bit dangerous for a general purpose library to be doing. And if you are actually concerned about that stuff, that's where writing your own migration scripts is probably useful. But I guess to make the broad point, that's on you, unfortunately. You have to do that in your app. Yeah, I remember back when I did Windows phone development, it was before it used SQLite, it used something else, I forget, but you had to do migrations manually. And I would I would have like, if I'm on this version, go upgrade and add this column to all the things. Again, I could have uh, just done the relational thing, but that was very, I haven't done that in a long time where I've worried about it because I've done best practices like you're saying where I'm like, oh, I'm adding an RSVP function. So now I'm just going to add another table. It's called RSVP and then, <laughs> you know, do that. Um, and, and even so, I'd always add to, to d- data structures and just obviously program in the notion that something could um, not have it, right? So it could come back as the default property or null or something like that. So as long as you're calculating in, in, into that, that, hey, user from a year ago is, is upgrading to version two, well, I want to make sure that the data structures in version two are compatible with version one and, and that sort of general programming. And that doesn't go away in mobile necessarily. Right. Absolutely. And so it's a little bit nerve wracking, I'll be honest, so that whenever you're releasing an app and you have to do a schema change like that, I did a big change where the first versions of iCircuit, it was saving all the individual circuits in a database It's just, you know, rows and a table which is great. You know, um, I use a database because in the old, old days, apps would just crash all the time, not because you're a bad programmer, but the operating system would just kill your app at just random moments because it was mean. And you didn't want to be in the middle of writing a file or something. So it was just much safer to do everything with databases. And I still think that a bit today. I still feel like the operating system can kill my app at any time. Anyway, I did this migration where instead of database stuff, I wanted actual files again. Mm. So I had to read the database, pull out all the rows, create files for them, do that once and do that perfectly correct. Mm. Uh, What if it crashes in the middle of that? What if it comes up a second time? I didn't want dupes of, you know, the migration out of the database into the file system. Mm. So that was a nerve wracking update. Like, you know, these updates aren't always smooth and easy. Fortunately, that one actually went smooth. I was completely freaked out about it because that was all the user's data. That was the most important part of the app, and I didn't want to lose it. And somehow I made it through that migration. So I know it can feel a little intimidating when you change that kind of stuff. Um, Test, 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 and phased releases (laughs) so you don't destroy everyone's data all at once. Yeah, and a good practice, too, is you could also back up that database, right? Just make a dot back, and then it's there, and then you could could even figure out some some things in that regard, too. It just depends on how long you want to keep that logic in your application and keep it around, Um, because, you know, once it's there, it's sort of there. Uh, But one thing I want to make clear here is that we're talking about database upgrades. We're talking about you know, migrating from a database to file system. You know, in this question, he specifically asks, you know, when is it written? When is it executed? Can I access file directory? I'll make this clear, and I, you can correct me if I'm wrong. You, developer, any developer, does not have hooks into knowing 
when your application is being installed or upgraded at all. You run these scripts when your application launches the next time. Yeah. And that's what made my upgrade so scary is that you can only run you can only run your update scripts when your app runs. And that means your app's going to run a billion times. That means you got to detect that first run yourself. So you have to, if you're in a database, read the database version and do the migration at the correct time. If you're in my case, you have to read the file system and do those things at the correct time. So as far as I know, you're absolutely right. Uh, you have no knowledge of that. While you were saying that, I kept thinking, like, I wonder if you ever get uh, an NSURL open context from running out of the app store or something like that. But that would be super fragile logic. So <laughs> the general rule is, no, you, you are not told when you've been updated. So your app has to have the smarts to figure out if it needs to update itself and if so to do all that stuff. Yeah, I'm trying to think too if there is an intent on Android. And I don't think so. Maybe there is an Oh man, there's so I many I keep wondering like with receipt validation, but even then, all that's telling you is whether they installed the app, not whether it's been upgraded in place. Yeah, I'm trying you would have to, to write a file like a magic file that has the version number of your app, and then you can read that version number. But see, I've done that before, and it doesn't work well because people inevitably update their phone or they buy a new iPad and you lose that file. So it's tough. It's honestly tough. I, I hate data. <laughs> yeah, the in, the intents from Android, you, you can put in an intent that says like when my application um like when it if if it gets closed or mm -hmm. if it gets you know there's there's some things like when it comes back like almost like when the device is turned on they've really locked that stuff down as of <laughs> recently and again i don't think that necessarily that would be a good experience so ideally you you may even build in a a ui experience into this welcome to version 2.0 we're making an upgrade right make it a the user taps on a the thing they got to wait for a thing that that's a valid <laughs> option based on how big a migration it is uh, instead of just it launches and then you do something and the user has to, you know, wait around for it. I don't, I can't really think of a app in recent history that has done that, but I have to imagine the things that we're talking about doing happen all the time in our applications that we're updating. Oh, they absolutely do. So that means you don't use the Dropbox app, huh? No, no, I do not. <laughs> you open the Dropbox app up and it tells you, we're updating the database, buddy. You better just get yourself a cup of coffee. <laughs> we're going to be here a while. We're going to put a little spinner up. <laughs> I actually completely agree with you. Um, when I did my iCircuit migration, I totally should have done that just because of the possibility for failure and that kind of stuff. Uh, I would say... If you do that on every update of the app, I'm going to get super annoyed, just like with Dropbox, because that's inappropriate. But totes, dude. Oh, my God. <laughs> Those people are updating their database schema every version, it seems like. I, I try to provide smoother app experiences. Like I, The Apple model with this kind of stuff is generally data doesn't exist. We just magically memorize all this stuff for you, and you don't want to bother the user with the uh, inanities of managing data. 
except if it's appropriate for your app like continuous um programming is all about file management so i bring files right up to the foreground and pretty much put you in control of the documents directory because that's appropriate for that app other apps i totally just try to hide the fact that they have data well, talking about data, let's take a quick break and thank our amazing sponsor this week, Calca. That's right, your symbolic calculator. It's the text editor that loves math and gives you the answers as you type it. Listen, do you love math? Do you love calculations? Do you love things that are built by Frank Krueger? Well, you need to get yourself a copy of Calca. Go to calca.io. It is one of the best applications I've ever installed on all of my devices in the history of mankind. It is simply spectacular if you're a data nerd by me. It's power enough for scientists and engineers or not, just like me. I'm not really a scientist or an engineer. I'm a manager, but it really lets me do really cool things like my finances, my, my mortgage payments, my rent payments, all that stuff. It gives me really cool syntax I can do. Go to Calca.io to find out how you can download today for iOS, Mac, or Windows desktop. And thanks, Frank Kruger, for sponsoring this week's pod. <laughs> Thanks, Fred Kruger. Thanks, Kalka. Wow, Kruger Systems has been really showing out the money for the ads. Lately. Yeah, they have. They have. Copyright 2018 <laughs> on that website. So you know they're really putting the work in. Uh, uh, I just updated those apps. Give me a break. Anyway, websites too. <laughs> <laughs> so well, let's talk about. So let's talk about the next thing, which I think is fascinating. Is is you know there's a lot of different devices on here. The next question that he inquires about is, are we as developers able to inquire about the user's device? And this is a fascinating question and branch the update code based on their hardware and iOS version. And now Frank, I cannot think of an instance in which I would need to branch my update code for the <laughs> hardware iOS version. Like that, I don't think that that's a thing you need to be concerned about. Have you, is, is it a thing that we ever need to be concerned about? I do it constantly. iOS 14, um, they keep changing tiny little minor things. We brought up the, you brought up the file picker earlier. They've changed how the file picker works in iOS 14. Mm -hmm. So we can, you can read this a few ways. Uh, Cause I know you do this too. You do a check of which version iOS is, and then you enable different feature paths based on that. Now, me personally, I never do um, enable one feature, disable one feature in those feature paths. I try to do two equal feature paths, you know, so I haven't done, if you have iOS 14, ah, you know, I'm, I'm talking myself around in circles a little bit here, because what I'm trying to say is, I do those branches just to keep up with the operating systems. I don't do it as features I'm charging extra for mm. or anything like that. But at the same time, absolutely, because um, a lot of the more advanced features, like let's say Metal, the, the rendering API on iOS, there are many versions of Metal and Metal support. I think there's four of them at this point, different classes of Metal devices. And... You know, if you are running an iOS 12 device, you might not have Metal at all. If you're running an iOS 13 device, you might have version 1 Metal. If you're running a, a device released in the last year, you probably have a version 2 Metal device. And those can definitely open and close feature sets. Mm. So it's tricky because those larger features... Boy, this is a long one. Sorry. <laughs> there, there can be info P list ways to require them. 
It can be in the version number of the operating system, or it can be really at the API level where you ask the operating system, is that feature there? Yeah, I read this completely wrong, and I'm so happy that you corrected me. And yes, you're absolutely correct, because um, when iOS... So let's say you create an application for iOS 12, right? And that's like the first version. You're just like, I support iOS 12 and up, and you only use APIs that are in iOS 12, right? Or older, you're totally good, right? You never need to check a version number because you know that those APIs are available on, on your, on your oldest version of the operating system and the newest versions of the operating system. The issue occurs is yes, exactly what Frank said is when a new API comes out and I want to use it, how do you become backwards compatible to ensure that my users using iOS 12, 13, and 14 all can use it. Or, for example, yeah, an API changes and there's a new override. You want to take advantage of it. Like they did this for open URL, I think, at like the API change at some level or something like that. And every iOS, year, every year every, they change open <laughs> URL. Give me a break. Yeah, I think, I think, I think, yeah, the, the bigger one was in like iOS 9 or 10 or something like that. And we, we always have to handle it in essentials. But the, what we do there is we do exactly what Frank says. We said, we do a version check and you can do this in essentials or the core APIs. It doesn't matter. And you say, Hey, am I running, you know, version 13 or above then use this new API else either you know, disable that feature. If it's a new feature that you're enabling for that user or fall back to your old functionality. So sometimes you may have older code logic that's inside of your application to support that feature because you still want those users to use your app. Now, maybe you later on get information that, hey, 0.0001% of my users <laughs> are using iOS 12. Okay, now you can remove that check or leave it in. Who cares at that point? You know what yeah. I mean? So I did read that wrong. It's correct. And that's the same with hardware capabilities. I think the, the interesting part would be if you're building an application that requires hardware, how do you get around that? Like, can you um, limit that. And you were talking about info P list, which is, uh, on, on iOS on Android, the equivalent would be the, there's using features and using hardware flags. So for example, you can say my application requires a touch screen. Don't allow people to install it from the app store. If they don't have a touch screen, like you can do that. Um, which is actually really cool. You can do it for almost a lot of features, not every feature, but a lot of features you can do that for. Not necessarily for APIs. You can't be like, oh, do you have a, well, on Android, I think you could say, you can say on Android, for example, only allow people that have a pedometer to install this application. On iOS, you cannot. That's only on I, I, iPhone 5S maybe and above, right? And that's a little bit harder and trickier to do, which is would be more of a, turn off the feature type of thing. Yeah, and, and it's always tough. So if you write an app that requires a pedometer, I, even that one, I was confused. I thought there was an info P list for that one, but whatever. You write an app that requires it, you put that in your description, you put it in your title, and you know day one there's a one-star review. I downloaded this app and it doesn't work because I don't yeah. have a pedometer. And you're Correct. Just like, ah, darn. And so that's more of an failing on the app store honestly they, they should be covering those scenarios a bit better but when apple doesn't cover it or google doesn't cover it the onerous is on us to do that and it's tough i was telling you a story 
um, when I first started working on iCircuit 3D, it was iOS 12. And I was like, oh, maybe I'll support iOS 11 because, you know, I thought I'd support one year back the operating system. Well, then 13 came and now 14 has come. <laughs> and I'm like, I just enjoy increasing the minimum version of this app I still haven't released over the years. And I actually made a pretty big change going from iOS 12 to iOS 13 because there really was a performance difference between the iOS devices between 12 and 13. The ones that were not allowed to upgrade to 13 kind of because they're kind of slow james like (laughs) and my app was kind of slow on those devices so it's interesting that sometimes you can use the operating system version number to cover your bases on all that other kind of hardware stuff because hardware features become standard or if you have um the health app you have pedometer whether you have the hardware device or not i think it'll even use like uh the accelerometer or something to do it so there's little tricks like that along the way yeah correct i think also you can there's a few little flags even beyond that the one i would say would be um, architecture so i remember using the arm 64 flag (laughs) to say i only want to support because this was a case where there was a year in which ios supported both 64 bit and for many years and the 32 bit yeah for several (laughs) years yeah but then there was one year which was like hey nope, (laughs) like we're done with 32 bit. Right. Uh, and and that was a flag. I said, you know what, what's great here is I, I, I know that I want to support these newer devices or this, this certain operating system. And I'm going to use this as a limit, um, to get these certain devices where it was a capability to say, Oh, okay. I want to support iOS 12, but I only want it on, you know, arm 64 bit devices. So that was another sort of one of those quirky flags that I put in there. So, yeah. Yeah. You know, it's funny talking about that, that 32 bit to 64 bit. Sorry, this is a total side tangent topic, but I was getting into the mono source code and I just noticed that uh, Mac used to be 32 bit and 64 bit. Well, the 32 bit Mac mono is gone. <laughs> They're like, <laughs> well, we're done with that. It's like not even in the uh, the code repo anymore. You can't even build it like 64 bit only. We've moved on. So I don't I don't honestly mind architecture changes like that. It's so much easier, especially coming from a .NET background, to deal with platform changes like that than it is, say, a database migration. Those are a lot harder to deal with than, you know, uh, a processor changing. But there was a a second part to this question also that was... um, uh, what do I need to learn to to in order to release a free iOS app with limited features, but allow the user to buy into the full app? And that comes into James's absolute favorite subject, and that is in-app purchases and receipt validation. I know you love it because you keep writing libraries that do it. And we, we've done whole episodes on this where we've talked about pricing models before. But I will say it is as simple as you're thinking it is. You have a Boolean flag somewhere in your code, maybe on the file system. And when someone does an in-app purchase through a series of callbacks, you'll get a flag saying whether that in-app purchase was successful or not. It's a little ugly, and you'll, but you'll get through it. And you'll save that flag somewhere. So if they succeeded, uh, write that to your database, write that to the file system and say they succeeded. 
If you're a little bit more paranoid, you can always do what they call receipt validation to double check that they actually did pay for that feature. But all that's coming down to eventually there's a Boolean somewhere in your code and you have an if statement in your code to either show the UI uh, that you might have been hiding before. That's generally the trick everyone uses. Like all the code is there. You're just hiding the user interface for it. Uh, that's pretty much it. In the olden, olden days, uh, we used to do pro and free versions of the apps, but I think that's a little bit passe and people have come to begrudgingly. I'm one of them, except in-app purchases as the way of life. Yep. That's pretty much a nail that, yeah, I was going to say that you can do pro and non-pro, but I, I don't really think that that's a. Is that, yeah. How do you actually, how do you feel about that? pro and non-pro versions you can do it and you can then try to upsell your your users but then the issue i have is you have to then make the decision so the, oh here's the the pro the pro is if you have a paid app the only way the person can get that paid app is if they pay for it right and like and like you don't you don't have to <laughs> it's validate so simple. it it's yeah. so great <laughs> yeah there's no receipt validation or any anything in there because guess what they paid for the app right but you you will probably still by the way have to put all of the boolean statements because your code base is going to be the same with either the free or the non-free yeah. version so you're going to have these forking of of it so and versioning will be a little strange and in, in ids and yeah. you can automate all of it it's not that hard i just think that in the world today it doesn't make a lot of sense to do it that way because if you get rid of the free version or the paid version at some point, just have one version, how do you then migrate your paid users over to like to your free version yeah. to do the, you know, I mean, I just think in general, it's either it's, it's paid. Like you're just, I'm, my app is paid, right? Because I'm period full I'm, stop. I'm a $20 no app, <laughs> buy my app. That's it. Right. And, um, or you have a free version that you can then upgrade to, to, to the pro version, if you will, or the plus version or do a subscription and, uh, go that way. And again, yeah, it's, it's a literally just a database. Now, now it's just a, usually a flag. I use a, just a preference just in general. Um, and also the nice thing about that is that you can then of course request from Apple and Google to say, Hey, um, let me also see if they did buy this, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so let's say they d- un- uninstalled your app and reinstalled your app, you would have a retrieve purchases type of thing. So it's all all hope is not lost. Or they could install that app on multiple m- devices too, and it's free, but then when they say retrieve, boom. The better way of doing it, which would require servers and signups, mm-hmm. <laughs> which I don't mm-hmm. recommend, but if, and if you have this- And certificates. <laughs> I don't, I mean, I only recommend this if you- um, if you already have that infrastructure it's, it's and you have a website and you want it to be all linked together is and you want it to you know be seamless that they can use it on iOS, Android and Windows all under one fee is is you basically have a user account that they log into and when they log in wherever they buy the thing that is what it would unlock it so really your your back end is going to do the validation and also say hey this user Frank is a pro user of my app. So make sure that's unlocked on all the things, right? Um, that makes it easier than some users that are like, oh, I got to buy your app or buy your in-app purchase on multiple devices or whatever. That's kind of a, a pain in the in the, in the the butt. Yeah, thanks for covering that. I, I totally neglect that on the cross-platform front. I've, I've really been pushing iOS on this episode on cross-platform. You definitely have to 
kind of have to do user accounts because at least on iOS, we have a little bit of iCloud access. So you can save things there and they transmit between the different devices. It survives upgrades. Even if they uninstall the app, it stays on iCloud. Mm -hmm. So benefits there, but cross platform, (laughs) you don't have that. So you got to build it yourself to do all that, which I guess it's like so many apps have user accounts these days. I barely bat an eye at it, but I still prefer the apps that don't have user accounts, I would yeah. say. So use that as a last resort. Yeah, that, that's what I would do is use it as a last resort. And and just depends on, on what your app is. You know, I I always think it's a lot harder to go from paid to free with in-app purchase than to just start with free plus in-app purchase. Or just make the decision to say, this is how much my app costs and this is it. Like, I still have not released the update for Island Tracker that uh-huh. that I, it's done, basically. But yeah. now I'm in the state where I need to test it on iOS 14 and the new versions of Android. Like, I, I'm just kind of scared to make changes. And Android has a bunch of requirements now. And, um, the you know, I, I had to go through a lot of series of changing the in-app purchase structure. But my back end is ready. I've done all the things. I'm just tired (laughs) i I, I mean that's just honest that's just me being honest frank i am just tired the fall the sun is starting to set everyone's waiting for the second wave of the pandemic but um i i I enjoyed this question because yeah you say you're tired but at the same time ios 14 has caused me to need to update all my apps oh no and it's it's over it's thank goodness it's not like crashing bugs or anything there have been ios releases where all my apps were just crashing but it's not one of those um but it's little things you know like they're they're always changing how search bars and navigation controllers work Mm. and it seems to break every one of my apps on i is it me james yeah at some point you have to ask is it me am i just an idiot when it comes to search bars and navigation bars like they just don't blend together right in my head or something i code them wrong because every version of the os i have to fix that code and so this was a fun topic for me because i've been in update mode for the last i don't know what the date is let's just call it two years i've been updating my apps (laughs) it's true i mean this is something that you know every developer needs to to think about it sometime because it's easier to it's easy to get your app out there but what about all those maintenance maintenance the hardest part (laughs) once your app is out it's basically maintenance forever um i mean you add new features but it's it's basically you know um, (laughs) it's basically maintenance so oh i have a i have a hot release though uh the new update to continuous got accepted over the weekend and i was excited over that it was um going to be a three-day update that took me three weeks you know one of those yeah you're just like i'm gonna add these two features that people keep requesting in app store reviews and somehow that turned into three weeks of coding but i'm very proud of it but yeah maintenance programming takes up i i swear i've written apps in less than three weeks (laughs) like i just can't (laughs) believe how long this update took me (laughs) that's cool yeah yeah i did get a uh i did get I'm reading your release notes. I did get an, uh, a test flight notification. I said, ooh, something's happening. But yeah, you you now support for iOS 14, read line, read key support, which is cool. 
Uh, it actually is. It turns out, um, you know, you you imagine who's using your apps, and then someone slaps in your face, slaps you in your face, and says, "We're using your apps." It turns out, obviously, a lot of students are using my app, and you know, uh, you know what they teach students: console write line and console read line. <laughs> Those are I'm, important. I'm I'm writing some new modules for working with the team on on Microsoft Learn, and it's like introduction to .NET stuff. And aha, uh-huh. yeah. uh, you know what we do. Please tell me console write line and console read line. That is correct. Yes. yes. <laughs> and what and what the difference is between console read line and write line and debug dot write line are. So um yeah, yeah, it's it's they're very and did you know there's a there's a trace line too, which is also fascinating. And they're configurable. You can override them. It's crazy. I'm not getting into that depth because that's too much. But yeah, you have a new font, <laughs> C sharp nine support. That's cool. ASP.NET core preview. Wow, that's a fancy update. I mean you bust on my iPad. Oh yeah, gosh. yeah. The three day, I I went a little obsessive with it, but that's cool. It's cool. I like making my apps powerful. You got lots of fonts now. I don't. I didn't mean to take turn this into a commercial. I just wanted to say, how do you updates. support iOS nine or later? That doesn't make any sense. That's five <laughs> years of devices. <laughs> that can't be true. Which which app are you talking about? Continuous is what it says. That that can't be right. You have it set for iOS nine or later. I think you put sixty four bit support for sure, but. Yeah, you support the iPhone 5s, sir. You know, um, I was going through some iCircuit code, and um, there were uh, if iOS three checks, <laughs> and I was like, wow. "Ooh, I think I can finally release the or <laughs> delete those lines that check for iOS 3. Wow, I've uh, been doing this for a lot of years. <laughs> Indeed. Well, if you have feedback for the show or you have a topic that you'd like to have us discuss in more detail too, sometimes we talk about stuff like, you know, Gary said, he's like, I'm pretty sure you talked about this, but, you know, sometimes we like to go deeper on a topic. It's always fun for us. So go to mergeconflict.fm and you can hit that contact button. Like I said earlier on the show, um, yeah, check out all of Frank's apps because why not? You know, Frank needs to be supported during these times. Uh, But that's going to do it for this week's episode of Merge Conflict. So until next time, I'm James Montemagno. I'm Frank Krueger. Thanks for listening. Peace.